see little houses. I see a little sign here. Please do not enter. This area has beehives. Hey, I'm Vanessa Fuchs. If the environmental battle cry of the 70s was save the whales, today it's definitely save the bees. We're warned that if bees and other pollinators go extinct, we'll go with them. Since 2006, the number of honeybees dying in Europe and North America has more than tripled. And that could mean an economic disaster for the world. The bees no longer hum around in our backyards. They are disappearing fast. Pesticides kills the landscape for bees. Look, this episode isn't trying to be a buzzkill. Bees predate the dinosaurs and they've got an amazing story to tell. So keep listening to this episode of Branch Out because we're about to enter the hive and there are some weird and wonderful things going on. Are you recording now? Branch. 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 Branch, Branch out. out. A podcast from the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. The waggle dance is this really cool thing that goes on in the beehive. That's Doug Purdy from the Urban Beehive, and he's taken me to see some of his beehives kept at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. Now, if you've never heard of the waggle dance, listen up, because it blew my mind. A bee goes and discovers all these flowers, comes back to the beehive very excitedly and goes, I've discovered these amazing flowers, there's stacks of them, you've all got to go there. Now, as you know, bees can't talk but they can dance. And she will do this dance. It's a bit like an, I guess it's a bit like an apple if you cut an apple in half. We've got the core going through the middle and the two outside edges, which they call the figure of eight dance. And, um, and so she does this dance in the dark, in the beehive, and orientates the core of the apple to the direction of the sun using gravity. Right? And they compensate for the sun moving with time and a headwind and all this stuff, but, but using the dance, tell the other bees how to find those flowers. Right, let's break this down. The wackle dance essentially communicates two things, the distance and the direction to the food source. So let's talk about direction first. That's communicated by a bee walking around in a figure eight movement on an angle. And it's the angle that indicates the direction of the flowers in relation to the sun. And because the hive's honeycombs are built vertically, straight up means towards the sun, down means away from the sun, and so on. Second is the distance, and that's where the waggling comes in. The further away the flower, the more the bee waggles its abdomen. And get this, the bees aren't watching the dance. They're feeling the vibration amongst the thousands of others. And it gets better. They vote. Bees look at my dance and, my, and the other bees dance and they go and check it out. When they come back, the ones that have been to the really good side will stop the ones that have been to the really bad side dancing by headbutting them <laughs> so, that the, so that the bees go to the good spot. It's a democratic society because they also vote on other important decisions, such as the location for a new home. A guy called Carl von Frisch decoded the, the waggle dance. And so we actually have a, a, a formula that we can use to understand what the waggle dance is about. And there are some, some bee scientists in Australia um, 
who can actually just look at the dance and know what it is and go, oh, yeah, it's over there. So what is it about flowers that is so important bees needed to come up with this incredible waggle dance? They collect nectar to make honey, and they collect that, that by um, storing it in a special crop, like a stomach. So they suck it all up with their tongue, which is like a big long straw, and store it in this crop, and then fly back to the beehive and regurgitate it, and then bees store it. Mmm, that's sweet, sweet bee vomit. You know it takes bees about a million flower visits to make just one jar of honey? And on top of nectar, they're also out there collecting pollen to eat. They've got this thing on their legs called a scapula, which is like a little hollow bit. They grab the, the pollen and sort of stick it all together and jam it onto, the, um, onto their, the hair on their leg and carry it back. And when they get back to the hive, they mix the pollen with water and nectar from the bee's mouth, which causes the pollen granules to grow into this kind of bee bread. It's then stored in honeycombs and even helps to add a certain amount of structural integrity to the comb itself. But finding nectar and pollen is just one of the many jobs you can have during your bee lifetime. Well, they start off, their first role is like a nurse bee and a cleaner bee, and they sort of clean up after themselves, after being born, and then help nurse the other bees. And they go through other roles, from air conditioning the beehive, you know, to being the, the, the defenders of the beehive, to being the foraging bees, which is like their last role. Yeah, those bees you see buzzing around outside are at the end of their life cycle. Bees only live about 50-odd days, and... They go through to the end of their life and one day they go out and their job might be to collect nectar. So they go out to a flower and they fly out there, load up on nectar, but because their wings are so worn out and old, they can't fly back to the beehive and they die. That's so sad. Yeah, I know. But in the bee world, that's not the worst way to die. The drones, the boy bees, have nothing to do inside the beehive at all. They can't even feed themselves. That and, sounds familiar. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and, and all they do is, right, between about 10 in the morning and 3 in the afternoon is all the boy bees leave all the beehives and go and hang out in drone congregation areas. It should be like the pub, right? I know. Doesn't sound too bad yet. Just hang on. And they're all hanging out in the pub and, um, and they're waiting for um, young queen bees that are looking for mates to come past. So it is really very much like the pub. This is bizarre. And um, the drones have got no stingers, right? They've very big eyes so they can see the queens. And so the queens fly past the drone congregation areas and all the drones are off trying to catch the queen. And the one that's the fastest who succeeds in catching her, mates with her, and in the process his, um, his peanuts gets ripped off. And there it is. And he falls to the ground dead. Oh, my God. And that's his life. That's it. That's it. That's over. It's right? short-lived. It's yeah, it is. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. With a, a bee smile. One <laughs> would imagine, you know, smoking a cigarette as he falls to the ground or something. I don't know. You still with me, guys? Sorry, there's, there's one more thing. And the Queen will do that at the beginning of her life with about 30 drones. And, um, and then she never, girl. she never mates again. That's it. That's, that's it. That's it for her whole life. She stores all that semen up in her body and oh. uses, uses it as she needs it through the rest of her life, which can be three or four years long or five oh years long. Oh, my God. I didn't know you were going to say that. Wow. Yep, you heard him. So you're probably wondering what happens to the drone boy bees that don't successfully mate with the queen bee and have their genitals ripped off. It's not a happy ending. The bees don't need those boys anymore because they're a drain on resources of the beehive. So they just kick them out to die. And so you come to a beehive, you know, just before winter, and there's all these forlorn-looking drones trying to get back into the beehive and not allowed to get back in again until they die. And the beehive makes new ones next year. And the cycle continues. And the cycle continues. <laughs> what a weird world. <laughs> so weird, but incredibly important. Because we need these busy and bizarre little worlds to keep going. 70% of our food crops rely on pollinators, which equates to around $200 billion of global agricultural revenue. Um, 
that can be anything. It can be avocados, you know, or it can be um, legumes, like all the beans, or it can be even leafy greens, because we need pollination to be able to replicate all of those. So if it wasn't for bees, that wouldn't happen. Doug's bees at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney, are all European honeybees. They were brought to Australia in 1822, and they were brought here because there wasn't um, enough pollinators to pollinate the European food. So we've got plenty of native bees here in Australia. We've got about 2,000 or so varieties and counting. But the native pollinators weren't used to pollinating the food that the Europeans brought with them. So what's the buzz outside of the European honeybee hives? Let's explore what's going on with our native Aussie bees. So many bees and flies everywhere. They're all crawling over me, but, you know, you can't blow them away or we're insect repellent because that's counterintuitive. That's Dr Nathan Emery restoration biology officer based at the Australian Botanic Garden. When I sat down on the and lay down on the bed that night all I could hear was just this buzz around me. Was there one in your ear? No, or you just was, no I just couldn't get the, the thought out of my head. <laughs> he spent multiple painstaking days of sitting quietly amongst native plants and counting the different pollinators who visit one by one. It's all about understanding what or rather who our native plants need to survive in the wild. Yeah, you sort of have to work backwards um, in the end. You, you have the plants there, we want to be able to put plants into the la landscape in area X here, for example, but we need to understand how they grow. So we need to then understand how to germinate them, how to propagate them. But then, okay, we need to have viable seed to be able to do that. So what do the plants require in order to produce that viable seed? And in Pisunia, for a lot of them, they need those pollen vectors to be able to produce or have a greater opportunity to produce viable fruit. Pasunia, Nathan mentioned, that's a genus of native Australian plants he's been researching. So it's part of the family Proteaceae which includes other really well-known um, plants such as Banksias, Waratahs and Pasunia is an Australian endemic genus and there's 99 species in total so it's quite diverse. They're quite characteristic too in the in the landscape. They all have these very small, inconspicuous uh, yellow flowers, and they once they're pollinated, they form um, into fruits or what we scientifically term a droop. And these droops or fruits provide a valuable food source for animals, and some people like to eat them too. But if the name is anything to go by, I'm really not so sure I'm keen. Western Australian pasunias are referred to as snotty gobbles. Yep. Snotty gobbles. So the snotty gobble word comes from the fact that when you suck the fruit, the remnants look like snot. <laughs> but on the eastern side of Australia, they're known as G-bungs. So take your pick. Okay, pasunias need pollinators. So what did Nathan discover after spending almost a week in the field counting bees and other floral visitors? A number of the native bee species that we've recorded on pasunias tend to be quite hairy so things like leoproctus or even blue banded bees and our native bees like leoproctus look nothing like the typical european honeybee they're, they're black with silver hairs on them so they almost look like an oversized fly so <laughs> until you actually understand what they are and and they are actually you know native bees then it becomes really easy to go oh there goes one over there let's let's go track that Pasunia flowers only get to about half a centimetre to a centimetre in size and they look like a tiny peeled banana. There's such inconspicuous flowers on pasunias. The pollen grains are tiny, they are kind of like, like dust. But the Leoproctus bee is built for the job. And the nectar is present at the base of the flower, so Leoproctus actually have a 
a flattened head at the front of them which allows them really effectively to get into the base of the Pisunia flower and gather that nectar reward and as they're doing that they get brushed by the anthers and the pollen grains attached to their fine hairs. The females in particular have these spines on their forelegs which allows them then to rake up all the, the nectar and pollen in really quick succession so they're very efficient pollinators. And a bee might travel with that pollen to another flower on the same plant or it might fly to a flower of the same species but on a different plant. The latter pollination is known as outcrossing. Now what that means is pollen from a different plant or a genetically different plant is more likely to produce a viable fruit through successful fertilization than say um, self-pollination, so pollen coming from the, the same plant. When plants aren't able to be pollinated and therefore reproduce naturally in the wild, sometimes scientists like Nathan have to play the role of the bee by performing hand pollination. They look to find, um, say, an open flower on a plant with some pollen present on the anthers, just extract that off using the, the paintbrush. Or with even tinier flowers, some scientists might use a toothpick. And then transport that pollen to another flower on another plant. It's quite painstaking and requires you to revisit the flowers and, the, and, and repollinate potentially multiple times while the flowers are open to ensure that chance of success. But hand pollination is by no means a permanent solution to replace the decline in pollinators. You know, we can't just get a, grow a whole bunch of plants and put them into the landscape and hope they're going to, you know, maintain themselves. If we can't ensure that the pollinators are going to be there, the plants aren't going to be self-sustaining and they might survive in the short term, but when those adult plants um, eventually die, there's going to be no viable seed bank there to keep that population going. Protecting our pollinators is one of the easiest and most accessible ways to make a difference on our environment, and we can all help. There's a huge push towards you know, sort of architectural gardens, which are low maintenance but they're also low pollen and low nectar and they're useless for our environment. You know? So we need to think about that stuff and go, okay, let's plant some things that flower. And preferably things that are flowering in winter as well as you know, so all year round have two or three different plants flowering and then we're supporting our environment. A great example is basil because it flowers all year round and it's easy to grow and you can use it for your cooking. Another tip is steering clear of nasty chemicals. We're losing pollinators worldwide due to insecticides, pesticides and herbicides. If you go to your favourite hardware store, there's like whole massive aisles of things that you can use to kill stuff. And most of it's not necessary. You know, the system can take care of itself, you just got to let it actually do it. Whereas when you use one of these toxins, you tend to interfere with the way the system works and it all goes wrong. And one last pollinator protection tip. Resist the urge to clean up. Nature is not tidy, right? Nature is disordered. So a disordered garden is better for the environment. You know, some, some old wood here and there and, and, and mounds of dirt for, for other bees to nest in and so forth. And all of that environment is what we need to actually be healthy. So Be healthy. Yes, I know. I didn't even mean to say that. If you liked today's episode and you want to keep getting Branch Out episodes delivered straight to your podcast app, please hit subscribe. You can also help other people find Branch Out by leaving a review or sharing it on your social media. And I know we talked about bee vomit and snotty gobbles and other weird stuff, but if you're still craving something sweet, you can get a jar of honey made by Doug's Bees at the Royal Botanic Garden by visiting the garden shop or the Calyx in Sydney. 
If you want to learn more about the movement to bring pollinators back into the city, head to theurbanbeehive.com.au. Next episode, we're looking at the science of nature play. It's also known as forest school or odor school in other areas of the world. You'll hear from nature play specialist Sam Crosby from the Ian Potter Children's Wild Play Garden in the heart of Centennial Park. Here, it's the whole body experience. You know, you're climbing, you're running, you're jumping, you've got to balance, you've got to walk on uneven ground. So that physical literacy is really high in spaces like this. Parents come to pick their kids up and they're covered in mud. You know, and they're like, oh my gosh, we've got to go see Grandma, I'm so embarrassed. And it's like, no, wear your mud with pride. In the meantime, if you want to know more about how world-leading scientists are delivering solutions to some of the world's most critical environmental issues, head to the science page on the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney's website. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and I produced this episode of Branch Out. Branch Out.